the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Folks, welcome to the Eric Metaxas Show, sponsored by Legacy Precious Metals. There's never been a better time to invest in precious metals. Visit LegacyPMInvestments.com. That's LegacyPMInvestments.com. Welcome to the Eric Metaxas Show. Back again, eh? Glutton for punishment, eh? When will you ever learn? Now, here's the host that you hate to love, the man who was the reason your friend sponsored your last intervention, Eric Metaxas! Folks, you're listening to a special edition of the show. These are the audio versions of amazing conversations I had. Socrates in the studio. These have not aired yet. The videos are not out yet. We want to encourage you to go to SocratesInTheCityPlus.com. SocratesInTheCityPlus.com. Sign up. This goes live January 4th. You can see the videos. It's amazing. I also want to encourage you, if you haven't yet, go to MetaxasTalk.com and give to CSI. Go to MetaxasTalk.com. Click on the CSI banner. Be generous. It's a beautiful thing. MetaxasTalk.com. And don't forget, SocratesInTheCityPlus.com. And now here's my conversation at Socrates in the studio. Here it is. So welcome. This is the first Socrates in the studio session with my guest, Andrew Clavin. Andrew, no pressure. It's the fir- this is the first. Now I could destroy this whole as I, I know. You could, you could blow this whole thing into the future. It just simply won't exist why I'm here. because of the failure uh, of what we're about to do. No, so uh, so there's really no audience. Uh, if you hear people laughing, I don't know who they are. Um, we we uh, th- this is meant to be just a conversation between us, and, and yet there are a, a few people here in the shadows. They're not uh, they're not going to be on camera because they're hideous. <laughs> um, but uh, but the fact of the matter is that this really is the first Socrates in the City session and as i told you earlier uh and as people will know the the conversation that we had a year ago it's amazing that it's a year ago um about your book the truth and beauty um it was so wonderful that i thought i want to continue the conversation and um i uh i couldn't find the money because people don't like you and it was just hard. And I said, how can we do this? Something I said. Yeah, it was something you said. Um, no, I really just thought you're one of those uh, figures to whom I could talk for almost endlessly. And so when we had the Socrates uh, in the City event a year ago, which everyone should go watch uh, on YouTube or on the Socrates site before this, because that was kind of like the seminal where we covered the basics, um, but I just thought, let's, let's keep going, because there's so much in the book. I wanted to touch on the, uh, the subject of the book called Truth, The Truth and Beauty, How the Lives and Works of England's Greatest Poets Point the Way to a Deeper Understanding of the Words of Jesus. 
Um, in, in our previous session a year ago, we talked about, you know, how you got the idea to do this, uh, but, but re- reprise the basics of it. Uh, for example, where you get the title, The Truth and Beauty. Yeah, it comes from Keats, the Ode on a Grecian Urn, which ends with uh, beauty is truth, truth, beauty. That's all you know on earth and all you need to know. And Pretty arrogant of Keats. Well, you know, he, he, actually he puts it in the, in the it's, in some versions, it's uh, in quotation, so it's the urn speaking. So it's the, urn, the Grecian urn that's right. being uh, arrogant. But basically, I find these poets, all of them on a single island in a single, in two generations, the greatest poets, the greatest English poets who ever live, except for Milton and Shakespeare, maybe. That who, all, who preceded them, obviously. Right. But they're all facing the same problem. The, the great critic Jacques Barzin said the only way to define the Romantics is there are so many different ones. There are liberals, there are conservatives, there are believers, there are non-believers. But they're all facing the same problem, which was that the entire structure of European thought and belief was collapsing. And it presented certain difficulties. Basically, the church had come under question. All religion had come under question. Faith was coming under question. It was for the first time you could be an atheist or at least a non-theist and, and actually talk about it. And these guys had to reconstruct the world. They had to rebuild the world. And it's hard, it's hard to believe that that happened then. I mean, I, th- th- that's one of the joys of this book is that you remind us of something that we should all know. Yeah. That what we feel is new uh, is, in fact, just... An, a, 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 a new iteration of something that began in this period. Well, it's been, hap- it's been happening for 500 years. It's been happening basically since, well, it's been happening since the Reformation, but then also the scientific revolution. And it has now reached the place that people predicted it was going to reach, but it hadn't yet. But people saw it. That's the thing about poets. They're like prophets. They see things coming, even if they don't know it. They describe the present world so minutely that you can detect the future in it. What do you, what do you mean, uh, because I don't want to wrap up what you're saying about the Romantic period, but, but what do you mean that now it's, it's uh, gotten to this point? Let's touch on that briefly, and then we'll come back okay. to it. Uh, well, as, as this is sometimes called the disenchantment of the world, as this idea that the world was a material place, a, a clockwork, that could be described, and things weren't, the planets weren't moved by the angels, there were forces, natural forces that took place, and as that gave way to Darwin, and we, we ourselves were just this kind of random creation of a random nature, people started to say, well, this is going to have an effect, and the one who's most often cited is Nietzsche, who, who said, God is dead, we killed him, and so now we're going to have to become gods, and what he meant by that was certain kinds of men, who called supermen, are going to have to find, find their way beyond the categories of good and evil right. to create an entirely new web of, of being and perception. Did he specifically use the phrase Klaus Schwab? <laughs> he, he, he had a did, picture did, of Did he, he prophetically? Of, yes, that was... But, uh, but, but how interesting, um, I mean, to be reminded of it, because it's not as though I hadn't heard that before, but uh, that Nietzsche calls it, that he sees it, he calls at it, the end of the 19th century. And the other person who calls it before Nietzsche even starts writing it, though Nietzsche was fascinated by him, is Dostoevsky, who has uh, uh, one of the brothers, Karamazov, Ivan, who is the brother who, it's not that he doesn't believe in God, he rejects God. He, he thinks there is a God, but he thinks the world is too cruel uh, to follow God and that God has basically blown it. And he, there's nothing God can do to make it up to us how cruel the world is. And what he says is, if there is no God, for every man who stops believing in God and immortality, 
not only will the moral world collapse, not only will his moral ideas collapse, but they'll become absolutely reversed. And the ego will become so important to it'll become so important to serve the ego, even to the point of evil, which will essentially have become good. And I think that that's a lot of what we're looking at right in this moment. And the fact that it's connected to the loss of faith and the fact that it's connected to the slow draining of faith over 500 years makes it almost invisible to us that this thing has finally come to pass. Wow, this is depressing. Can we cut? Um, no, seriously, this is so beautiful in a way because you're, 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 you're teasing out some things. What you just said, um, you, you talk about, I mean, there is an innocence to the way the romantics or that period processed this compared to where we are now. Well, for one thing, they had the French, at first they had the French Revolution and they thought, oh, this solves the problem. Kill the priests, kill the kings, everything will be great. Just a little murder. Just a little, just a little yeah, bit. You just know. enough. But unfortunately, that didn't work out as well as they thought it would. And like the collapse of the Soviet Union in, in our time, there were people who said, oh, that actually disproves their, the- their thesis that this is going to save the world. And as in our time, there are plenty of people like Bernie Sanders and people like that who just think, no, no, it's fine. It just, it just happened to go wrong this time, but next time it'll work. And Wordsworth, most importantly, he was the guy who saw the French Revolution and he said, this is bliss. This is wonderful. Everything, all the injustices in the world will be swept away. And then he went to France and he saw priests murdered in the street. And over time, he came back and said, you know what? This is an utter failure. And in fact, the traditions of Britain are more important and more uh, urgent to maintain than I thought they were. And he started to have to rebuild the idea of what it means to be a human being. And what's, to me, one of the kind of wonderful through lines in the book is, is the work of uh, Samuel Coleridge, who was, of all of them, the most, he may have been one of the most brilliant men who ever lived. He may have been one of the 10 most brilliant. He was just an absolute polymath. He knew everything. And in those days, you could know everything. There still wasn't that kind of special. It's often said that Milton was the last human being I, who had read everything because, it, you know, in, t- in terms of the world of printing and that, that, that he had read everything that could be read at that time. After that, so much was 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 written that nobody could do that. But you're saying, in a sense, Coleridge was like I, that. I think he was the last man to know everything, to know everything there was. And of, of all the romantic, the great romantics, he was the one who was actually a, a believer, a Christian. Folks, right now in other parts of the world, people's lives are being threatened simply for believing in Jesus. People have been enslaved for their faith. So listeners to this show know that I'm passionate about the work of Christian Solidarity International because they protect and free those who are being persecuted and enslaved for their Christian faith. I've got to thank you for your life-changing generosity for years now. If you've given a CSI through this program, you have played a role in freeing literally thousands of of captives. So as we near the end of this year, can I ask you to give once again your gift of just $250 will free a woman in Sudan who has been enslaved for years. You can buy a believer's freedom and provide her with food and other supplies necessary to start her new life. Just $250. Maybe you can give more and free more people. Call 888-253-3522, 888-253-3522, or go to metaxastalk.com. Please do it, metaxastalk.com. Legacy Precious Metals has a revolutionary new online platform that allows you to invest in real gold and silver online. 
In a few easy steps, you can open an account online, select your metals of choice, and choose to have them stored in a vault or shipped to your door. You have access to a dashboard where you can track your portfolio growth in real time anytime. You'll see transparent pricing on each coin and bar. This puts you in complete control of your money. The platform is free to sign up for. Visit LegacyPMInvestments.com and open your account and see this new investing platform for yourself. Gold hedges against inflation and against a volatile stock market. A true diversified portfolio isn't just more stocks and bonds, but different asset classes. This new platform allows you to make investments in gold and silver, no matter how small or large, with a few clicks. Visit LegacyPMInvestments.com to get started. You're going to love this free new tool they've added, Legacy pminvestments.com legacypminvestments.com check it out Folks, you're listening to a special edition of Socrates in the studio these have not aired yet the videos are not out yet we want to encourage you to go to SocratesInTheCityPlus.com. Sign up. This goes live January 4th. You can see the videos. It's amazing. Hi, everyone. If you've been injured in an accident that was not your fault, listen up. We have legal professionals standing by to answer your questions for free. Call now and find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Call 800-702-5400. I'm here with spokesman John Wolfe. So, John, tell everyone listening who should call right now. Well, Maria, first off, thank you for having me here. It's always nice to answer the listeners' questions. Now, as far as who should call in, anyone who's been injured in an accident and think you deserve compensation, give us a call right now. 800-702-5400. You'll find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Thanks, John. You heard it, folks. Take advantage of this opportunity and call now. 800-702-5400. Advertisement sponsored by Legal Help Center may not be available in all states. Each of the great poets were touched by Samuel Coleridge in a different way because all he ever did was talk. He met him and he just talked, 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 talked. And every time he talked to people, they changed. And one of the people he talked to over the course of a long year was Wordsworth. And so he found Wordsworth at the, in the midst of the failure of the French Revolution, and they just started talking. And to talk to Coleridge was basically to listen. You were just listening constantly. <laughs> and at the end of that time, they wrote one of the greatest books of poetry ever written called Lyrical Ballads. And it changed, completely rewrote the rules of poetry. It rewrote everything. But it also rewrote what it meant to be a human being. Where was the human being located? he wasn't located, if the church wasn't telling you where he was located, if he wasn't located in the heavens, where was he? What, what made your perceptions real? I mean, all of this is what Hamlet was dealing with in, uh, with Shakespeare was dealing with in Hamlet, where he has Hamlet say, you know, because I'm depressed, the things that are usually beautiful are ugly. So therefore, how do I know whether things are, are beautiful or ugly? What do those categories mean? And those are the kinds of questions they were dealing with. And I think because the main highway of Western thought went in one direction and the romantics went in another direction and kind of into a dead end because they didn't have faith anymore. What, what did they say uh, in lyrical ballads or what in others when you say that they put forth this thesis about, you know, what, what is a human being or what, what, it, what, what, what effectively are they putting out? It, I'll put it to put it as simply as possible. It basically that 
The experience of being human is a collaboration between creation, or what Wordsworth at one point calls the one great mind, between creation and the human spirit, and that that is a legitimate collaboration. In other words, that's re- that is a reality. The rainbow is the symbol of this. Um, you know, Wordsworth has a poem where he says, my heart leaps up when I behold a rainbow in the sky. So was it when my life began. So is it now I am a man. So be it uh, when I shall be old or let me die. Let me die if I don't take pleasure in the rainbow. And the reason he was saying that is because Newton had recently shown that a rainbow is a real thing. You can't put the light back together. Once the light is separated, it is a real thing. But the only place it appears as a rainbow is in the human eye. And so it's a reality that only becomes itself through human perception. And what they were beginning to realize is everything is like that. Okay, so, but this is like the deification of subjectivity? Well, that's what a lot of people think. That's what a lot of people think. A lot of dumb people like me? <laughs> well, is that what because, you're saying? No, because there were so many different romantics who said so many different yeah. things. But Coleridge specifically said, how he thinking through how are we going to know whether the subjective experience is real or not? the experience of beauty, the experience of, of truth, the experience of good and evil. And he said he believed that, that Jesus Christ was what he called the sensorium, the model for checking our perception against the perception of reality. And that once you have that, that solves the puzzle for you. And each person he talked to became greater for talking to him, even when they didn't know why. You know, Wordsworth ultimately became a Christian himself, but it took him a long time. And... The other one who was deeply affected by one conversation with Coleridge was John Keats, and he died too young to know where he would have gone. But he was he was certainly a believer of a kind. Well, when you talk about um, there's a few threads here, you, you, you were saying that they during this period could see that something's collapsing. Yep. And it has to do with many things. It has to do with Newton inadvertently making it seem like, you know, it's all mechanics now, it's, it's funny, it's ironic, because Newton himself didn't believe that, but he puts forth right. this idea right. of, of, you know, so people go, so it's all just these forces, these, these forces, and there's nothing transcendent, nothing beyond the mechanics and whatever. So if I'm tracking with you, you're saying that the, the, the romantics felt like we, we can work with this, we can create some kind of reality, or did, that, that's not what I'm clear about. They, they, they started to think, well, where is this person located? Because they still all... One of, one of the things that hadn't happened yet, that has happened to us, was they hadn't lost the, what, what sociologists call the habitus, the, the outlook that had been created by thousand and a half years of Christianity. So they still knew what was true and what was not true. They just had to find a way to justify their knowledge because it was falling apart, that, that faith was falling apart around but, them. But it's interesting because it's kind of like cheating, right? In other words, yes, it, it, yes, it was. That's, because that's it's true. like you know, well, it's like... I guess one version of this is the people who all somehow knew that the ethics of Jesus were superior, but they didn't like the miracles, but they said, but can we keep the ethics uh, and get rid of the miracles? Uh, Can we make him a great moral teacher, but get rid of the idea that he's God incarnate, whatever. And then, and you know, that's the 19th century and, 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 and so on and so forth. So that's part of what's happening here among the figures you're describing. Yeah, and the only one who really understood it was Coleridge because he knew everything. And he was the, he was the one who got it. That helps. And yeah. so, yeah, so he would go and talk to them, and each one, when he talked to them, suddenly became a better, like, he made words with a genius. And 
after COVID would go away, they kind of sink back. You know, Wordsworth lost his talent in, in some ways after after Coleridge went away. He started writing some of his later poetry, just really bad. And he knew it. He knew he had gone off the rails. And and Keats is is in absolute despair. His brothers died. He's out of money. His books are being absolutely torn apart by the critics. Bumps into Coleridge in a park and has a 45-minute conversation with him. And goes off and writes the great odes, the ode to the Grecian urn, the ode to autumn, the, these, the greatest poetry since Shakespeare. It is the greatest poetry, English poetry since Shakespeare. And so, so Coleridge was like this little spirit who would implant what he saw and go away. And then these guys would suddenly become greater than they had ever been and then kind of fade away again. It's interesting just talking about the history of uh you know, the end of faith or the disenchantment and, and how that process goes along. I don't remember if in The Truth and Beauty, the book uh, that's here, if you t- you talk about Dover Beach and Matthew Arnold, do, do, do you? I do quote it there, yeah. Because, t- talk about that a little bit, because it's it just so fascinating. Again, we, we kind of act like, well, this has happened in our time. It's the 60s or something. Yeah. And it's like, no. Uh, it, it, it happened, you know, it happened in the 20s. It happened in the, it, it, you can trace it back uh, roughly to this period that, that we're talking about. Yeah, I mean, there's this great shock that is Darwin and evolution and this idea that we are these random things. And if you ever want to read a great poem about this, uh, it's Tennyson's In Memoriam, where one of his, his best friends dies, and he writes over the course of months, he writes this long poem mourning his friend's death. And all throughout it, he's struggling with this tremendous pain about his faith. He can't quite find it again. His wife is kind of smacking, you know, just believe, just shut up and believe. But, but he keeps thinking, you know, he says at one point, nature is red in tooth and claw. And he, when he looks at uh, Darwin, it's not the randomness of evolution. It's not the mechanics of evolution that bothers him. It's the complete disregard with which species were wiped off the face of the earth. How can you, there be a good God when entire species just disappear in the course of, of millennium? And, and so, no, this is a, a struggle between the human heart, which has now had implanted over you know, 1,500 years, has had Christ implanted in it in the same way the, the Jews had the law implanted in their hearts so they could recognize Christ, so they could produce right. Christ. Now Christ has been implanted in the human heart. And, and suddenly the science seems to be taking it away. Right. And, and this is the thing, this is one of, for me, one of the great themes that you have to understand in every given moment. We live in time, and our, idea, our ideas as human beings develop over time. It made perfect sense after Newton for people to think, oh, it's a clockwork universe. It, it didn't really make sense even then, but it was kind of a legitimate extrapolation. We're not all scientists to hear that, you know, the, there's gravity and things spin in a certain way. And you realize that the people who wrote the Bible didn't really understand how science worked. And so it must it's all a be strong, untrue. It's a strong temptation in, in, in every yeah. epic and, to say, now we figured it out. And you have to think, exactly, you have to think it through. And because it's an idea unfolding, it feels to the human mind like progress. But it may just be, you're going through a, you know, you've yeah. gone through a journey. I've gone through a journey. Part of my journey was atheism. I didn't. I don't look back and say that was an error. I thought it was a footstep I had to take to get to the next place. Now, obviously, it was incorrect, but I had to go through it in order to see the next thing. And that's, I think, 
what was happening then. They had to go through this period of materialism, of mechanism, of thinking it's all a clockwork. But it was never true. Folks, right now in other parts of the world, people's lives are being threatened simply for believing in Jesus. People have been enslaved for their faith. So listeners to this show know that I'm passionate about the work of Christian Solidarity International because they protect and free those who are being persecuted and enslaved for their Christian faith. I've got to thank you for your life-changing generosity for years now. If you've given a CSI through this program, you have played a role in freeing literally thousands of captives. So as we near the end of this year, can I ask you to give once again your gift of just $250 will free a woman in Sudan who has been enslaved for years, call 888-253-3522, 888-253-3522, or go to metaxastalk.com. Please do it, metaxastalk.com. For more than 10 years, Patriot Mobile has been America's only Christian conservative wireless provider standing behind their values and their exceptional service. They're an example of putting the cause ahead of profits, and it's why I am proud to partner with them. Starting today, Patriot Mobile is extending their Black Friday deal to the Every Friday Matters deal, and you can get a free smartphone when you switch today. Patriot Mobile offers dependable nationwide coverage, giving you access to all three major networks, which means you get the same coverage you've been accustomed to without funding the left. When you switch to Patriot Mobile, you're Supporting free speech, religious freedom, the sanctity of life, our veterans and first responders, and more. Their 100% U.S.-based customer service team makes switching easy. Keep your number, keep your existing phone, or for a limited time, get a free smartphone from Patriot Mobile. Go to patriotmobile.com slash metaxas or call 972-PATRIOT and use promo code FRIDAY76. Again, get a free smartphone with promo code FRIDAY76. This is a limited time offer. Join me, make the switch today. Patriotmobile.com slash metaxas or call 972-PATRIOT. Tell me why Relief Factor is so successful at lowering or eliminating pain. I'm often asked that question. Just the other night, I was asked that question. Well, the owners of Relief Factor tell me they believe our bodies were designed to heal. That's right, designed to heal, and I agree with them. And the doctors who formulated Relief Factor for them selected the four best ingredients, yes, 100% drug-free ingredients, and each one of them helps your body deal with inflammation. Each of the four ingredients deals with inflammation from a different metabolic pathway. That's the point. So approaching from four different angles may be why so many people find such wonderful relief. If you've got back pain, shoulder, neck, hip, knee, or foot pain from exercise or just getting older, you should order the three-week quick start discounted to only $19.95 to see if it'll work for you. It has worked for about 70% of the half a million people who've tried it and have ordered more. I'm one of them. Go to relieffactor.com or call 800 for relief to find out about this offer. Feel the difference. What we're talking about, of course, is the idea that if you're honest, and because this is this is, I think, the story of you know we're living through it today. Where people they want the parts that they like and that they agree with, uh, and they want to get rid of. And so, so, so they're trying to process, how can we keep the parts we like and get rid of what we don't like, right? So with, you know, Thomas Jefferson, you know, he snips out the parts of the Bible that are miraculous, and he keeps the, the wonderful ethics of Jesus. Yeah. 
And then you want to say, well, what's so wonderful about them? Maybe Jesus was just a nut and it's all wrong and you just like it, but you don't care that it's logically wrong. You're not you're not being logical about this. You right. know, that, that if he if he wasn't God or whatever, on what basis do you say these ethics are so wonderful? And so you you, you have this. Um, it, it is funny how some people are willing to be utterly clear eyed like Nietzsche or Dostoevsky or, you know, and say that if you get rid of God, this is what's going to happen. But you have all these other people thinking, well, no, wait a minute. We think we can we can, we can make it work. We, yeah. we, we can make this work somehow. And I would argue that that instinct uh, is evidence for God, that, that, that we, we have something within us that we can't escape because we are, in fact, made in God's image by God that knows something about truth. And, and so we can't really cold-bloodedly wipe it away and say it doesn't matter. We, we, we somehow sense that that can't be right. This is, well, this is, I think what you just said is absolutely right, and it's one of the things that keep people, non-believers, keep stumbling over, the fact that if everything we see is just an illusion, which is the deduction you have to come to if there's no God, you ultimately will come to the idea that every, that's, that's why I think art falls apart. That's why you get abstract art where people put squiggles up there because they don't trust what the human being sees. But if everything that we see is an illusion, how come every time I walk toward Fifth Avenue, I hit Fifth Avenue? How come you can produce numbers, which are imaginary things? There's no such thing as a two. And yet I can produce numbers in such that they can predict when light's going to hit the earth from a million miles away and where and what's going to happen next. How does that happen? So we, have, we actually do have a connection, a collaboration with reality. And it's very, very hard to get to that place, the place where you have a collaboration with reality without God, ultimately. And if, if we have a sense that can do that with numbers, if we have a sense that can see light, the light we see isn't the light God sees, but it's the light humans see, then why shouldn't the morality that we see be morality? You know, this is, this is the whole reason why Dostoevsky has this character say that good and bad are going to change over because all you've got then is your desires, basically. All you've got left are your egos. Now, that, that's interesting. You mentioned that a few minutes ago. The idea that, uh, you know, it's, it's the apotheosis of the ego, the will, which, um, going back to Eden, I mean, it, it's that we can be as gods, so that what I want has to take precedence over everything else. So it's, it's almost like baked into the system that God created, yeah. that, that if you turn from him, you become this you know, a uh, Miltonic, Byronic, Satanic figure. And it's inescapable. You want to be, you want to rule, you want to reign in hell as long as it's your hell. I mean, it sounds like that's where that's going. Well, this is, uh, this is why in my, in my journey to faith, which was took so long because I'm so stubborn, but like in my journey to faith, the Marquis de Sade, who invented sadism, where we get the word sadism, he was a, a huge influence on me because when I, at one point when I became an atheist, I started reading atheist philosophers. And I would read the existentialist and I read all the different atheists and I would say, this doesn't make sense. This doesn't hold together. This doesn't hold together. And then I got to the Marquis de Sade who said, no, we should, you know, rape and kill people because it gives us joy. That's what nature does and there's no God, so why not? And I thought, that makes sense. And that's when I stopped being an atheist because I thought, if, that, if that's where that's going, I'm not going there. But see, that's, <laughs> but that's right. That takes some kind of courage and intellectual honesty to see where it's going. Right. And, and so uh, when yes, you read yes. 
you know, God forbid people read Marquis de Sade, people don't realize how horrific some things actually can be. That, that like you don't want to read it because it's it's really horrifying. It can it can be it can be it can it can it can mess you up. It's so bad. It's scary. It's like, you know, if you eat, take that pill, you could die. Like, be careful. And what he's talking about, again, to, to see things that clearly to say, OK, listen, there's no God. Therefore, there's no good or evil. But most people can't accept that. They say, well, I don't like God. But I like the idea of good and evil, and what I believe is good is good, and, 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 and I'm, 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 they're, they're not honest about it. So Nietzsche is honest about it, Marquis de Sade is honest about it, and it takes you to a place so dark that it's scary. Well, I, I think that's why, I mean, I, I don't know if this is happening to you, but it is happening a lot to me, so I suspect it is. I'm starting to talk to people who are not religious who have started to talk in religious terms. Yes. They haven't changed. Yes. They haven't changed their belief yes. system. But suddenly the word demonic is coming. Yes. I hear people talking about the end of days, which, as you know, because I trust Jesus who said nobody knows when the end, I never talk about the end of days, but suddenly people who have no faith are telling me, this feels like the end times. This feels like something's coming to an end. And, and I think it is because this pattern that the Gospels and the Bible explain to us, it, is kind of being revealed. It's kind of the skeleton is coming out of the out of the body. Well, it's kind of like the thing of, of you know running out of gas and being on fumes for a while. Yes, we've been on yes. fumes for a while. Yep. Um, Oz Guinness has called it the you know the cut flower society. It's like well that that flower it's looks wonderful, <laughs> and you realize yes, and yet it's been cut. It is dying. It will die. Don't be fooled by the fact that it still looks wonderful. It'll only look wonderful for a little while. It's still got a little juice in the green fuse, and then it's over. And Nietzsche called it the shadow of, of the dead god. Are you tired of not getting a good night's sleep? Well, my friend Mike Lindell has created the perfect solution. He didn't just stop at the pillow. He also created the Giza Dream Bed Sheets. Made from the world's best cotton called Giza, these sheets are ultra soft and breathable, yet extremely durable. And now for a limited time, you can get 50% off the Giza Dream Sheets with prices starting as low as $29.98. These sheets come in a variety of sizes and colors and have a 60-day money-back guarantee and a 10-year warranty. Take advantage of this amazing offer. Go to MyPillow.com and click on the radio podcast square and use promo code Metaxas at checkout. You can also find deep discounts on all MyPillow products, including the MyPillow 2.0 mattress topper and MyPillow towel sets. Don't wait any longer to get the best sleep of your life. Take advantage of this amazing offer. Go to MyPillow.com and click on the radio podcast square and use promo code Eric at checkout. Don't wait any longer to get the best sleep of your life. Call 800-978-3057 or go to MyPillow.com now and use promo code Eric. You can do what you feel Life is a Ferris wheel Come take a ride It's on the inside uh, So what we're talking about is beginning to see the flower dying We're, we're talking about beginning to hear the car rattle and think, uh We've been running on fumes that we're going to have to pull over now. It's over. We can't go any farther. But we've had, as you put it, and you, you, when you're talking about the romantics, they, 
they had had centuries of, of this. You get this in Europe, too. They have yes. this kind of cultural heritage, which carries them uh, to some extent. But you're saying that people who ordinarily wouldn't see themselves as religious are kind of looking around and solving for X. Yeah. And when you solve for X, you go, I don't, I don't have any other explanation <laughs> except to say this looks maybe evil. Uh, what, what is happening? You know, recently I had this idea come to me that all the history books of the Bible, the stories of the kings and all this, are one conversation. And the conversation is God saying, don't kill babies. And, and the Israelites saying, well, what if, what if we, this, no, no, just don't kill the babies. And the people say, well, yeah, but my wife is a foreigner. I'm telling you, do not kill the babies. That's the entire history of the Israelites. And, when, and finally, when one of the kings just goes out and kills the babies, does it in Gehenna, which becomes Jesus' synonym for hell, you know. And now that we are living in this world where we are killing, not just killing babies, but we have to fight to convince people that it wasn't their right to do it, which to me is specifically evil. I can understand a person in distress doing something terrible, but to declare that that terrible thing is a human right is an actual act. There's no other. I hate to use the word evil because it cuts out any kind of uh, you know argument. But but still, that's an actual act of evil. The idea that we are butchering children to in an attempt to change their sex to give to turn their body into a costume of the opposite sex. I mean, this there there is something demonic about it. It's hard not to believe that something has escaped through a crevice in the ground and come up to take us over. And I just think the fact that secular thinkers like Nietzsche and and deep uh, religious thinkers like Dostoevsky saw this moment that only this moment could come, that you have to think that either when we reach the end of that prediction, something new and beautiful will occur to save our butts, uh, or we've reached the end of the road, and it's hard to know which. Well, um, you know, when you refer to the idea of... uh, you know, cutting up body parts and, and in, in a sense trying to refigure ourselves as though we could, uh, as though we are gods who, who can create ourselves. Uh, that, of course, takes us back 200 years to Mary Shelley yeah. and to Frankenstein. So it, it is fascinating that some of these, you know, poets and seers, so to speak, these visionaries were, were already putting their fingers on what we're looking at. Well, it brings us back to Frankenstein in two ways. One is in the kind of idea that human beings can create any kind of person that they want, but also in the elimination of women, which she foresaw. I mean, to me, Frankenstein is the story of a man who makes a a human being without a woman. And the the father, the motherlessness of of the... What do you mean to you as a... That's true. Well, yes, but... but there are very few people who've articulated it. Right. A lot of people say it's about a man playing God. And I say, well, no, because people do create human beings. All he does is remove the woman. He's not removing God. He's removing the the woman. And I think that is so important because we've not only want to remove women by saying some guy in a skirt can become a woman, that makes him a woman, but we want to remove the values that womanhood has really defended and represented throughout history. The values of home, the values of nurturing, the values, the values of humanity. We can only picture, as materialists, we can only picture every relationship as a power relationship. 
So, which is itself a demonic it's just, concept. It's, it's, it's nonsense. And it's also a, a parody. You know, that's the, that's the toxic masculine part of masculinity. In other words, it, it, it's a bastardization of what real manhood is. Yeah. But it's interesting when you mention, like, you know, the verb to nurture. Talk about a dirty word. I mean, that, that t- today's, uh, you know, whatever, uh, th- thought leaders would sneer at the idea of women as nurturers, mm. that they would, they would absolutely um, somehow be uncomfortable with, with that. Like, that, that's just, that's passe, or it's bourgeois, or I don't know what, but it's, it's so interesting when you think it used to be this beautiful thing. Well, it, uh, it, it's, an, it's an, actually an amazing thing that we have reached the point where we say of homemakers that they're just homemakers. They're just at home. They're just at home moms. Yeah. I mean, even what's what's funny is a lot of this is falling. One of the things that gives me hope is a lot of this is scientifically falling apart. It has already fallen apart. A lot of the ideas that contributed to this materialism are, are going by the wayside scientifically. One of these ideas it, it, that has now been shown uh, physically. I mean, I, I hate to say it's been proved scientifically because it was true. It was proved by by simply simple human observation is that people receive their individuality from their mothers. After birth, in their interchange, there's things that happen in the human mind, in the human brain, that only happen in the interchange between the baby and the mother. And the baby and the mother are actually one person, even after birth, until that individuality comes in. So there's one of the urgent, you know, spiritual tasks of human beings. And while other people can fill in, nobody can quite do it, like the actual mother. And I think that that's... You know, one of the, I think that's one. I think one of the things we're trying to destroy is our humanity. To be honest with you, you know, I think that that when when people say people are now talking about, well, maybe this AI will replace us, and you think replace us how? What do you think a human being is? Do you think a human being? Well, is I, I, I just have to interrupt here. I want to just say, uh, for now and all time, artificial intelligence is artificial. And it's not intelligent. It's nonsense. <laughs> yeah. It's utter nonsense. And you have people trying to, you know, this gets to everything we're talking about. I mean, but the idea that there are people foolish enough to think that if a computer, what, is, is powerful enough, it's going to make the leap, the infinite leap to some consciousness or, or, or something like that, which is... You know, like, how do you do it? That's like if I'm creating a ladder and eventually, you know, I'm going to be I'm going to I'm going to be able to to touch the sun, you know, (laughs) and you think that, no, it it, it, actually it's, it's worse than that. saying about, um, you know, Newton and, and, and Darwin, and, and we are just, you know, we're nothing. We're just material, right? If you believe that, then all this stuff follows. That's right. And that's kind of where we are, that there are people 
who, who believe somehow that we could create, I mean, it, it is like, you know, Shelley's Frankenstein, I can, we can create a human being out of parts. It's like, well, a human being is more than a bunch of parts. Well, this to me is the center of everything we're going through. The, so we'll talk it, about that. It, yeah. it, it, what is a human being? What does it mean to be a human being? And I think it's, it's really fascinating. Like everybody's looking for a, a new, because we are in such political difficulties, everybody's returning to political philosophies and uh, a friend of mine the other day was reading a very famous essay, essay by Carl Schmitt called The, the um, Concept of the Political. And he's describing this thing to me, and I'm listening to it. So I actually went back and read it. It's only like 75 pages, so I read the essay. And the thing about Carl Schmitt is he became an enthusiastic Nazi. And I think... Not that we're judging. <laughs> that raises questions right. to me about your philosophy. But as I was reading it, I was thinking, oh, yes, I recognize this. This is Machiavelli. This is Nietzsche. This is all these people who come up with systems. They're Freud, too. And, and this is not to say these people aren't brilliant. They notice how things work, but they have no way of acknowledging the inbuilt sense of morality that human beings are given. So Sigmund Freud, a great example, and I, you know, brilliant, he, was, he was a quack, but he was a brilliant quack, and he said a lot of things that are true. And he talked about repression. He talked about, you know, your sexual uh, desires being repressed. Freud didn't want you to take the repression away. He was a Victorian. He thought the repression was just great. But people extrapolated from that as they went forward saying, oh, what we need to do is we need to, you know, get free ourselves. We need to free our sexuality. But Freud, and the reason they could say that about Freud is because it never occurred to Freud that we had an inbuilt moral sense that accepts some repression. And as, other, as a good as thing. As a good thing. And, and just says, oh, yeah, no. Uh, you know. it's, it's like a, a helpful guard against uh, madness and suicide. And of course we do. Of course we do. Yeah. We always have, you know. That, they, they say that philosophers get their idea of human beings from the most advanced technology they have. So, you know, Plato has the chariot and the, the, the horseman is our reason and the cha chariot, the horses are different, you know, things, feelings we have. But the, but the charioteer has a moral sense. He knows where the chariot is supposed to go. So he has this idea of a built-in uh, moral guide, whereas Freud is building his idea off the steam engine. Things are repressed and the energy has to come out. There is no moral guide there. There's, we're just a machine. Our, our psyches are just uh, mechanical. And now you talk about things that are, you know, download uh, software, our software, our hardware, and all this stuff. But none of this accounts for the fact that we are perfectly capable of saying something is wrong, even when we can't explain why it's wrong. And the the evolutionary biologists are now saying, well, you know. We, we evolved so that when we smell something bad, we think it's, it's wrong. And you think, like, well, really? Because we evolved sight, too. And my sight actually is fading, but it will get me down to the corner of the street. So I'm actually seeing something that, that's really there. So why should my moral sense be utterly open to question? Well, they, yes. And, the, the, you know, they contradict themselves at every turn with, with, with all this kind of stuff. And it's, it's interesting, too, because when you bring up Freud... Because Freud was talking about sexual repression, it was literally sexy, right? So it's yeah. the idea that there should be any boundaries. It's like, we'll throw that away. We just, we just want freedom, sexual freedom, as though it will lead to good somehow, right? But you wouldn't say that about repressing violent tendencies, right? right. In other words, you say, no, 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 it's good that you repress your violent tendencies. Don't, don't be stabbing people in the face just because you hate them. 
because that could be a bad thing. We, we don't have any problem with that concept of repression. Uh, but Freud obviously, you know, hitched his wagon to the libido and, and it made it sound like some kind of a, a just a general good. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.